You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, episode number 277. Pick up a camera, shoot something, no matter how small, no matter how cheesy. Now you're a director, James Cameron. Broadcasting from a dark, windowless room in Hollywood, when we really should be working on that next draft. It's the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, showing you the craft and business of screenwriting while teaching you how to make your screenplay bulletproof. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Now, today's show is sponsored by Bulletproof Script Coverage. Now, unlike other script coverage services, Bulletproof Script Coverage actually focuses on the kind of project you are and the goals of the project you are. So we actually break it down by three categories, micro-budget, indie film market, and studio film. There's no reason to get coverage from a reader that's used to reading tentpole movies when your movie's going to be done for $100,000. And we wanted to focus on that at Bulletproof Script Coverage. Our readers have worked with Marvel Studios, CAA, WME, NBC, HBO, Disney, Scott Free, Warner Brothers, The Blacklist, and many, many more. So if you need your screenplay or TV script covered by professional readers, head on over to CoverMyScreenplay.com. Have you ever wanted to learn from a Hollywood blockbuster screenwriter or even an Oscar winner? Well, I wanted to put together a free three-day screenwriting video series taught by legendary screenwriters, David Goyer, from who wrote The Dark Knight, Nia Valdouris, who wrote the Big Fat Greek Wedding, Oscar-winning Callie Corey, who wrote Thelma and Louise, and Oscar winner Paul Haggis, who wrote Casino Royale. If you want access to this free class, head over to bulletproofscreenwriting.tv forward slash free. Now, guys, today on the show, we have filmmaker, producer, and best-selling author Shane Stanley. Shane is a multi-Emmy award-winning filmmaker who has produced or directed over 49 projects in his amazing career. He's best known for producing The Gridiron Gang, starring Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Now, Shane has had so much experience in the business that he decided to sit down and write a book called What You Don't Learn in Film School, A Complete Guide to Independent Filmmaking. And after reading the book, I was so impressed that I reached out to Shane and decided to partner with him and release the audiobook version of What You Don't Learn in Film School through IFH Books. This book is a prerequisite if you want to be an independent filmmaker. There is so much amazing information. And after reading it, I'm like, oh my God, I wish I would have had this book when I was starting out. There's just so many knowledge bombs that he drizzled throughout the book that will help you avoid those massive pitfalls of independent filmmaking. Now, I wanted to bring Shane on the show so we can kind of dig into a little bit about what the book is about, his long career, mistakes he made, and just wanted to squeeze as many knowledge bombs out of him as I could for this episode. So I want you to sit back and relax and take in everything Shane has to say in this conversation. And at the end of the episode, I will show you how you can get a free copy of the audiobook what you don't learn in film school. But until then, please enjoy my conversation with Shane Stanley. I'd like to welcome to the show Shane Stanley, man. How you doing, Shane? Alex, I'm good. Thanks for having me. How you doing? 
I'm, I'm as good as we can be in this crazy upside down world we live in, sir. <laughs> Woo. Every day I keep thinking it may just start finding its right way back up and then the wheel and the ball just spins back. You know? and, then it's, and then it starts raining murder hornets. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean. And what was the new animal they threatened us with last week? I don't know. Uh, like 25 foot, a 25 foot grizzly? Like, I don't know. And like, it's. Um, it's, 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 I just saw, this is a, this is going to be a film geek thing before we get started. Did you see the, the, the trailer for Grizzly 2? The, the, the film that was shot in 1980 something and is now being, re- being released in 2020, but stars George Clooney, Laura Dern, and Charlie Sheen. Oh, wow. And no. I saw, I just saw it was on my Facebook feed. I was like, this is, it had never been released. It was sitting in someone's. Uh, closet and they finally remastered it and edited you know what's weird is i used to run charlie sheen's production company from 96 to 99 okay he was he was friends with george clooney and he kept saying yeah we did a movie together years ago (laughs) that's it years ago and and i wow i liked this and i it never came full circle now it did Yep, I'm. I'm glad I can bring closer to that part of your life, I've sir. I've always wondered what that was because it never. I never got answers. <laughs> Grizzly Two, starring it has George Clooney, Laura Dern, and Charlie Sheen, and uh, oh God, the guy. Um, no, the star of it. The star of it is um. Oh my God, I can't. John, John Reese, uh, the guy from uh, Indiana Jones and Lord of the Rings, with the big, the big voice and the beard. I know who you mean. He's the English actor. Yeah, he's an English actor. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, he's, the star, uh, he's the star. He's the star. He's the star. And you see right, him. At, I gotta, I, okay. It this hasn't is, come out yet. It's coming out. And and I, and I saw him. And I saw him uh, in the trailer. He's literally lassoing a twenty-five foot grizzly bear, <laughs> which is so obviously not a twenty-five foot grizzly bear. It's just so brilliant. Um, I can't wait to watch it. So I'm sorry, everyone. We had to start off with a little bit of film geekery. Uh, but so, uh, so Shane, tell me how you got into the business. You know, Alex, my my journey into Hollywood was was uh, a little different than most, but not uncommon. Uh, my father, when I was born, was a working actor, and he had uh, been in films like Ice Station Zebra with Rock Hudson, Mannix, Mod Squad. He was a working blue collar actor. He was under contract with MGM and Aaron Spelling. And as I was born, he volunteered me for a national television commercial. It was for a new company called Century 21. I was the little baby in diapers that this new couple was buying a house. And so I became a childhood actor before I could even walk. And did that for a number of years and was quickly bored with being in a trailer and being there all day to do a couple of minutes of work. And my father had transitioned into becoming a filmmaker, a documentarian, and and a very successful one. And he had a moviola in the house. He had the RE 16 millimeter cameras, the flatbeds, splicers. And I was fascinated by that equipment, Alex. And before I was seven years old, I was running a moviola. I was assisting him and his editors doing sound sync and splicing and fixing films that would come in that needed repair. And I just, I fell in love with the process of just from watching them storyboard ideas and doing educational and documentary films. And then seeing it on the screen when it was all done was just that whole concept of delivery was fascinating to me. And that, that's really what, what brought me in. 
And um, and then you 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 worked on a film called Gridiron Gang, starring The Rock. Can you tell us how you got involved with that project? I executive produced that. It was an interesting story. Um, being independent filmmakers, my my father, my my stepmother Linda, and I were producing this documentary series called the Desperate Passage series, which ran from 1989 to 94. And it it involved at-risk youth, taking them out on at-sea expeditions, you know, Michael Landon, Lou Gossett Jr., Marlo Thomas, Sharon Bless, Eddie James almost all used to host them. We had a great pool of talent. And there was a story in the LA Times about this juvenile football team that had hatched up at the local prison and we had already shot i think five or six films up there at camp kilpatrick in malibu so my stepmom found the article she brought it to my dad and said i think we should do this my dad said no i'm kind of done i mean we've done five or six of these shows on these kids let's move on and she hounded us to really pursue it so he called probation and so he hunts us again we'd like to do it and they said oh get in line hollywood's hollywood's come knocking and some some big studio had the rights to do it. And three weeks later, they called us and said, do you want to do it? Get up here. They start practice tomorrow. So my dad, myself, Philip Hearn, Ken Schaefer, and David Johnston, God rest his soul, uh, went up to Camp Kilpatrick and shot for three weeks. And uh, a documentary that became known as Gridiron Gang, which as soon as it aired became in 94, the most popular property of the year. I mean, every studio at Paramount got into a big one. Really? And then 15 years later, we made the film. It sat in Columbia for 15 years before we made it. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a, that's a lovely little thing that the, film, the filmmakers listening should understand, that the Hollywood is not fast uh, by any stretch of the imagination. So, they, these, there's projects that stay in development for decades. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And deck. Well, what was, what was really interesting is we, we went and made Gridiron Gang and nobody would air it for two years. And we had already had a ton of success with How the come? Desperate Passage series. We had 13 Emmy nominations. We won like eight. And I don't know. I think it was because it was football, you know, high school football. Who wants to air that? That's that. You know, and then kidding? finally, <laughs> like everybody wants to see, like, there's so many people who want to watch high school football. Yeah, no, this is 91, 92. Different. And, okay, know, fair enough. Um, different time. Friday Night Lights hadn't hit. So once it got aired on KTLA, everybody wanted it. And it was interesting, too, because a lot of actors wanted it. You know, Mel Gibson, Charlie Sheen, we were talking about John Candy, Cher, you know, it was, uh, uh, Sean Penn. A lot of people were calling for the rights and wanted to get involved. And then we made our deal with, with Sony. And they put it on the fast track. And at the time, Mark Canton was the president of the studio, and they were going to attach everybody from Bruce Willis to um, Andy Garcia to uh, Dustin Hoffman. They had all sorts of plans. And then it went into turnaround. When Mark Canton was shown the door at Columbia, it went into turnaround and sat for another eight years without you know, being able to do anything because they had over $2 million charged against the film. So anytime a producer called us, Alex, and said, hey, whatever happened to Gridiron Gang, it'd be great to make that. Yeah, great. You know, pay Columbia two million, and then we can talk about because they they had that much invested. So it was a turnaround. And then how did so then they sold it over to Paramount or Paramount picked it up? No, 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 no. What happened was is Neil Moritz was a budding producer. You know, Neil is known for Fast and the Furious, SWAT, and just about every other hit 
Hollywood has cranked out in the last decade. And Neil was was somebody who was involved with us early on. And he went on to do Fast and the Furious and SWAT and Triple X and all these great films. And we always stayed in touch with Neil. He's he's genuinely a good guy. He endorsed my book, as you saw. Mm-hmm. And um, Friday Night Lights came out. And then we knew We Are Marshall was getting made. Facing the Giants was this big indie Christian hit. And it was like movie after movie, Invincible, we heard. And one thing we have to admit, Alex, you and I joked about this before we started, is Hollywood repeats itself. They copy. It's a copycat industry. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of like, if there was ever a time to make Iron Gang, it's now. So my dad and I called Neil and said, do you want to make it? He said, yes, let's meet tomorrow, but have a cast in mind, because that's what's always stalled this thing out. So I'm coming up with a cast list a mile long, Vin Diesel, Bruce Willis again, let's go with these guys, and Jason Statham, and and my wife, then girlfriend at the time, was in uh, the bedroom watching TV, and she came in and she said, I need you to come see something. And I said, I'm busy. I'm making a list for Neil Moritz. And she said, stop what you're doing, come in here and look at what I'm watching. And it was the E! True Hollywood story on The Rock. And he had been arrested a dozen times before his 18th birthday. He had played at a very high level on the national championship. Miami Hurricanes was drafted into the CFL, NFL, blew out his knee and started from dirt and made something great of himself. And I watched that five minutes, Alex. And I, I, I went back to my office. I tore up my list of 35 plus names that I had spent four hours coming up with. Went into Neil's office the next day. We caught up. Been a while since we saw each other. And he said, all right, where's your list? And I said, I got one name for you. I said, Dwayne Johnson. And he yelled to his assistant, Nikki, Nikki, when's my dinner with The Rock? She said, tomorrow. He said, get me a copy or get me a DVD of the, of the uh, documentary you and your dad made two days later. <laughs> We were up at the jail with Dwayne Johnson, walking the premises, and actually you knew we were making a movie. I mean, you know. <laughs> that was and and Dwayne, I mean, he was he was the rock, but he wasn't the rock. Like he he was he was big, but he wasn't what we know of him today. He had just done Walking Tall, Scorpion King. He was early, early. Um, he had done a few it was early, yeah. And he was leaving to go do God that video game movie he did right after. Oh, we met, um Doom. That. Doom. That. Yeah, that yes, he he jokes quite a much about a bit about that, but it was still early on. Yeah, walking tall, walking tall was a hit, and you know, but he wasn't what we we can like the rock now is the rock. Right. <laughs> and, and and I can't think of a I can't think of a person who deserves the success more. Talk about humble, sincere, gracious human being. I feel honored to say that we're to this day, twelve years later, we're still good friends. We stand regular touch. He's if anybody has earned it and you really know his story, I think you would say it's him. And if you ever get a chance to work with him, run to it, it you'll be glad you did. That's amazing. Yeah, he's, I'm a huge Rock fan. I've, I've been watching The Rock since the WWF days, and I freaking love The Rock. Um, oh, no, the, I, I could do one eyebrow. That's it. I could do the, I could do I the can't. one. I, can't, I, can't, I could do one. I can't do the other one. Um, now, you wrote a book called What You Don't Learn in Film School, which is basically my entire brand uh, <laughs> what i've been it's been a pleasure no it's been what i've been talking about for years and it's like guys um you know one of the reasons why i started the podcast was like i didn't hear anybody really out there at the time telling it how it is from a place of someone who's walked the walk like being in the industry and really getting the shrapnel and getting the hell out beat out of them and you know 20 i mean at the time i launched I was already like 18 to 20 years in, you know, and just working with a ton of people and I've been, you know, and all sorts of craziness. 
And um, and I wanted to give like a voice to like, no, guys, this is not really what it is. So that's when I when I found out your, about your book, I was like, oh, I gotta, I gotta have Shane on. We gotta, we gotta talk. So, what are your thoughts on film schools in general? Do you do you need to go? <laughs> well, I think you know it's it's a question that is the the age old. That's a sixty four thousand dollar question. Um, I am not against film school. What I am against is charging people yes. six figures to get a degree in French noir cinema, or, <laughs> you know, film yeah. theory and celluloid and how to keep it preserved in an archive. I mean, there are curriculum that I think are completely useless, but there are things there that I think are important. And I think, Alex, you know, like me, you're a blue collar guy. You, you know, if you come on the set of my Jane Seymour film. If I wasn't working with Jane or my DP, I was physically unloading the grip truck and helping the guys set up. It's just who I am. Sure. But I think there's a lot of us who didn't have a parent who bought us a camcorder or we didn't grow up at a time when our phones could make movies or I, not everybody was lucky as me to grow up with moviolas and dads who were making documentaries. So if you don't have an understanding of the craft or have any idea about it, I think, you know, to become an architect, you would go to school to become an architect, to become a lawyer, you would do that. I think the most important thing somebody can do is read a book like the one I wrote or be involved with websites and movements like Indie Film Hustle, because there is only so much they're going to teach you at school. They have to keep the persona on that you do need this or they're without work. I mean, that's the way it is. Um, but there's so much the business of the business that they don't teach in school, as you know, uh, they don't teach about distribution deals. They don't talk <laughs> about how to hire a crew or how to make. I mean, I do all my own contracts, whether it's actors, Screen Actors Guild, IOTC, Teamsters. They don't teach that. Nope. So where are you going to learn it? You're going to learn it from guys like you and me and the other people out there that have that have you know, stood on a soapbox and try to, to promote it. So I think film schools are good. I get nervous where a lot of them. Their instructors are not tried and true filmmakers or people that that haven't been on a set in 20 or 30 years. I, I go around the country and do workshops and seminars. Well, now that we're on Zoom, I do them from here. But it amazes me the lack of credentials the teachers teaching our next generation of storytellers have. It's all just third generation stories about the history of cinema, and that's not filmmaking. No, I agree with you 100. percent I again, I always tell people, look, if you get, if you can, if you have no understanding and you have no no other way to get this information, film school is wonderful at a price, at a at a price. Like my film school, I, I went to full sale and I paid eighteen thousand bucks. I know it well. I I, I paid eighteen thousand bucks in nineteen ninety something, and um, and it, for eighteen grand, it was it was well worth the cost. You know, because I learned how to rap. I, I, I'm sorry. Were you in Orlando? I was. Yeah, I was there for a year and a half. I was there in '93. I taught a, a workshop in '93 in Orlando. I don't know if you were there. I was. I was not there yet. I'm a. I'm a little bit. A little bit older than you. A little bit. A little bit younger than. You, a little bit older than that. I'm not a little I'm bit 49. older than. You. I'm sorry. I'm 49. Well, sir. Well, no. I'm. I guess. Um. I, I'm. Uh, we're similar vintages. Let's say. Uh, we're similar vintages. <laughs> So, uh, but the thing is for that 18 grand, which I still think was a little bit pricey for my taste because uh, I learned how to wrap cable and I learned how to make a cup of coffee. Those were the two biggest takeaways from my film education because, because the technology was changing when I went. So oh, I was, yeah. I was learning, you know, I, I was, I was still told by my post-production professor, 
that a computer will never be able to produce broadcast quality images. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. So, oh, wow. yeah, that was a quote. I was like, wow, okay. I yeah. Okay. So the big issue I have with film schools is that, yes, do some great stuff in it, but the ROI is not there. No. You cannot charge somebody 60, 70, 80, 100, $120,000 for an education that you and I both know will not return its investment. If you're going to be a doctor, there is a system set up to get you money back. If you're a if lawyer, you're a <laughs> if you're a pilot, if you're an architect, if you're any of these other, if you're an engineer, there are ways, there are systems set up for you to start. And it might take time. I'm not saying that doctors, they cost like, you know, $300,000, $400,000 um, for their education. But there's systems in place to get that money back. Whereas in filmmaking, there is absolutely nothing you can do to guarantee anything. And, and you and I both know that it will take, if you're good and lucky and you hustle like there's no tomorrow, maybe five years before you start generating enough money to support yourself if you live in Los Angeles. And that is like the outskirts, more likely 10 years. You, you couldn't, you couldn't say it best and uh, better. And, and, you know, my whole thing when I started this, I learned the hard way because, you know, I, like you, was trying to come up with a way where in between films, what could I do to, to make a living and also help others? There's got to be a way. Because I tried to be a teacher. I squeaked out of high school. So nobody yeah. would hire me as a teacher because I didn't have a degree. Yes. <laughs> okay, fine. Um, I get it. So how can I help? And my whole thing is I was meeting with some of the top film institutions in the country. And I said, and I, I still am very close to a few of the chairs and they let me in on some very private stuff, but I would be under exaggerating if I said they know 86 to 92% of the kids who go through their full programs will never earn a dime in this industry. Absolutely. I know that. And my original approach, Alex, was what if because of the connections I have and my passion to help these students become, because they are a next generation of storytellers. My way of giving back, how about if we start a mentorship program their senior year so when they get out, we're almost handing them a baton. So people like Neil Moritz, people like Amy Powell, who was running Paramount at the time, could know these students and help place them and introduce them. And maybe once a year we can have a, 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 a gathering, you know, obviously before COVID at, a, at an arena or something where there's a lot of film people and a lot of students that can just make connections. No, nobody wanted to do it. No, they didn't want to do it. No, and there's and look, they're selling the sizzle, man. They're not selling the steak, and that's that. But that's the that's the thing. They have to sell the dream. Hollywood needs to keep this dream alive. Where if you go to film school, and and by the way, before that was the truth, which was you had to go to film school to get the kind of education you needed to get even a job in the industry in the seventies. That's true. In the 80s, there was no other option where now there's guys like you and me out there talking, writing books, doing podcasts, YouTube channels. There's so much information out there that you don't need to. And I know a lot of filmmakers who decided, you know what, I got $50,000 for an education. I'm just going to go make a movie. And they learned so much more by just 
going out and making a movie, which might be good or bad regardless. It's an education. I promise you, if you go make a movie, it's an education. You will you will learn more making a movie, whether it's a short or a full length, because you know you've made more than I. I learned something about others. I learned something about how society interacts. Because I come back to a cave, you know, I shoot a movie. I do concepts of delivery. So I'm usually editing it. I'm post-supervising it. It's mm-hmm. an 18-month process for me. I go away. Well, I think it's safe to say in the last 18 months, our world has been through quite a bit. <laughs> I've been in my studio for the last 18 months working on Break Even, which comes out later this year. So to be honest with you, I kind of know what's going on, but I can't wait to get back on a set, schooled and reminded where we really are. I use those as I, such learning curves for me because I go in and I'm like, okay, this is where we are today. And it's, it keeps me on my game. It's an exciting experience and every time i do something i learn no no without without question every single time i'm on a set every single time i i I do you know in post-production every time you're writing a script you learn more and more it's it's like anything else you you got to learn the craft and every part of our craft and it's so complex it's not just writing a song it's not just playing uh an instrument it's not just carving a table out of some wood you're right. It's multiple di- uh, disciplines that you need to understand, at least, if you don't have to do them all. But you should understand this entire process, which is massive. It is, it is a complex art form. It, and, and we haven't even talked about the business. That's just the art form. Then the business is a whole other conversation. And there's a the business side. You're right. You've got to go hustle your, your money to get attached. To the project to get the actors to sign them up to get Ugh. the project going and then you got to crew it and cast it and location it and feed it and make it and then sell it it's a process and then do it all again <laughs> and, and, it, all again. and it doesn't and it doesn't generally generally speaking doesn't work out exactly how you have planned whether the positive or in the negative it's always something else oh. and and uh, it will break your heart more oh. times than not it's it this is a horrible relationship this industry we have with it it's an abusive relationship it's an absolute it's a toxic abusive relationship it's so well said it's but but with that said we can't quit crazy (laughs) we can't we can't quit it (laughs) like i need it's that it's that broke back now i just can't quit you right i can't quit you man it's the it's it's the truth you can't quit because you know, I've been saying this for a while. It's kind of like you catch it. You catch it and it's with you for life. You can't get rid of it. It flares up sometimes. It goes dormant for decades even sometimes. But it oh, I literally had a conversation with a filmmaker the other day who was 65, just retired, and said, hey, I'm starting to write my screenplay because I've always wanted to make a movie. And I'm like, that is the case. It's, got, it's flaring up. It's flaring up now. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. I had, I've had a good run. If I, if I dropped dead tomorrow or was told I'd never make another movie, I'd be sad, but I've, I fought the fight. I won some battles. I'm proud of my body of work. And I wanted to just become a workshop guy and a seminar guy and a mentor to these film students. I was done. I said, you know, if I don't make another, make another movie again, I'll be want to teach. I've done my, I, I fought the fight. My resume's there. And now I want to go teach. And I, I did that for, I was six months in and, I still love teaching and mentoring and workshopping. I do it a few days a week now, but I couldn't wait to get back on a set. I missed my crew. I missed fighting oh. the writer. I missed 
arguing with a DP and fighting with an actor and being told I don't know shit and, you know, the hell with you and having them storm off and all that fun stuff that actors do when they know they're wrong. And um, I missed it. I missed being in the edit bay going, why didn't I get that extra angle? God dang it. Why aren't we got to make it work anyway? You know, I miss that. I I just um, can't quit you. I just can't, I can't, I just quit, can't quit you. you. I'm feeling that. I can't. I just can't. I can't. I always say I, I just can't quit crazy because it's crazy. Yeah. It's it's no, insa- I, it's insanity. Yeah. Now, what is the biggest thing you see film schools leaving out of their education? Besides absolute honesty that 93% of the people going through the program more than likely will never make a dime in the business. I, you know, that's a great question. I think um, when you look at a standard curriculum, I think that the, the most important thing that film schools leave out is the importance of learning different variables within our industry because when i go do a seminar first thing i ask how many of you guys want to be writers hands go up producers hands go up directors all the hands go up and i say look there's 200 of you in this room right now if two of you are able to make a living as a director in 10 years i will eat this podium still haven't had to eat one yet and i say you know what the, what i always try to preach is you have a choice and you you touched on it alex is it takes five to ten years to get a foothold in this industry And what I always tell the students and the kids coming up, and I do a lot of work with community colleges now more than university because they're older, they've had to fight for everything they have, they take buses to school and skateboards Mm -hmm, and they've mm -hmm. got kids and jobs. But what I always tell them is, I get you want to write, I get you want to produce, direct or act, and I love that. Don't ever let that passion go. But if you want to work in this industry and better, learn how to be a gapper, learn how to be a grip, learn how to be an AC. Learn how to edit, learn how to learn how to learn how to, because I bet you would much rather be on a film set as a script supervisor than drive an Uber. I bet you'd much rather be helping unload a grip truck and setting up for a cinematographer than flipping burgers. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And if you're on a set, you're going to be around actors, producers, and directors. And if you stand out and you conduct yourself well, people will take notice and want you for the next journey. And that is what I feel the film schools leave out, which isn't a specific curriculum. It's common sense. It's life skills. It's how if you don't make it as the next Quentin Tarantino or Billy Bob Thornton or, you know, um, Damien... uh, Help me the with Cassell, Cassell, Cassell. If you're not one of those three, which they always tell you you can be, what you gonna do? And one thing I love is uh, Chris Christopher Rossiter. For anybody listening at uh, LA uh, Community College, he has an entire course off of cinematography that is just grip and electric. He does that so people can learn a blue collar skill on a set and go make three to five hundred dollars a day. I I can't even tell you that's like music to my ears because when I first started out, I didn't know how to do anything and I started PAing. And I realized that PAing sucked. I yeah. hated it. It is atrocious. It was horrible. Uh, and I worked at I worked at Universal Studios, Florida. I worked in Disney MGM. Um, if you if are you familiar with the Orlando area during that time? The, the productions. Oh, my father's whole side is from Orlando. Very okay. Well. So uh, I, so I'll, I'll, so this is just a little bit of a, a trivia. I've never, I've never even said this on the air before, but a little bit of trivia. Let's see if you can, let's see. I'm going to test your Orlando knowledge. Mm, good my luck. first PA job 
which was an internship PA job, started off as an internship, then turned PA, was with Kim Dawson on the back on the back lot of Disney MGM. He was the producer of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Oh, jeez. And he did a show called The News on uh, on the back lot of Universal. So then he started off. They started off on at, on Disney MGM, but they actually shot it on the back lot of Universal, and then we moved over to Universal. And it was like a it was like a Saturday Night Live ripoff. And I that was like the coolest thing ever to work for the producer of of um, <laughs> which at the time was the biggest independent film of all time. And it's made a comeback. Yeah. Oh, now it's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Obviously, they've 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 done, they've done well, but that was uh, that's why. And then I I worked on Sequest. I worked on Fortune Hunter. Did you, did you work on Sequest in L.A.? No, Universal Studios, uh, Florida. You know they had they also shot here at Universal. Here I worked on Sequest here. <laughs> there you go. Castle Rock back in ninety three ninety four on Seinfeld. They threw me on Roseanne, even though it wasn't a Castle Rock show. They threw me on Sequest, American Girl, and a couple other ones. And they would, and, and occasionally coach, and they would throw me on Sequest when they needed extra bodies over there. And it was usually the fake dolphin in the tank. Oh yeah, all day. Was, I, I, I get to see Roy Schreider, and on on the set it was the coolest thing ever. And then right. I I was there when they switched the seasons to Michael Ironside as the lead. So I mean, oh. I it was it was uh, it was an entertaining. But that that was my whole. And I also worked in Nickelodeon. Of course. Uh, That's so, cool. So I worked at the fun jobs. I actually worked on Global Guts. Global Guts was like this uh, this show for, it was kind of like a, it's like American Ninja for kids back in the day. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> it was awesome. It was so awesome. But anyway, we're taking, we're, t- we're just going down the Orlando uh, road. Guys. Going down memory lane. Um, well, we, we did a film with Dennis Hopper called uh, Held for Ransom. Him, Deb Mazar, and uh, I think Matt Dillon. Uh, and it was based on a Lois Duncan book who wrote, I know what you did last summer. My dad directed, uh, and we, we went out and shot with Emmett and Pearl. It was when they were first getting started. And, you know, Emmett and Pearl has done a million things since then. And that was quite a hoot going out there to see family and work on this film. Um, it was interesting, but that was the only time I ever actually did a film out there. Well, don't forget that. Don't forget that Orlando was going to be the next Hollywood. Don't you, don't you remember? It was going to, it was, it was going to be the next Hollywood. Everything's the next Hollywood. I mean, the only thing that's even come close is Georgia at this point in the game, and they've actually become the next Hollywood. Start wearing masks, they actually may have a chance. Um, so what is the what are some of the biggest mistakes you see first-time filmmakers make? You know, the, I'd say some of the mistakes that that I see first-time filmmakers make, Alex, is and and I touch on it in the book. I feel everybody's trying to make that movie for Sundance. They're so convinced their idea is fresh and great. They're going to be the next, you know, Damien Chazelle are going to be the next, you know, whoever. And I, 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 like you, am probably a guest on sets all the time. I get invited first time filmmakers, last time filmmakers, same difference. And it's the attitude. It's this air of arrogance and, and this BS persona. It's like, just shut up. Treat people with respect. Make your movie the best you can and learn from it. And and to me, it's it's they try too hard to to be a part of something that's probably not going to date them, as you and I were talking about before we started this interview. And hey, if you get into Sundance and all that, that is the greatest thing an indie nobody can get on their on their resume. And I hope it happens for them. But 
Go make a movie, enjoy the process, embrace and consume, learn, be a team player. Don't be above it all because you raised $6 or you're directing this stupid movie to go help a guy who's struggling setting up a craft service table. I watch more people's egos. You know, you go work on a film like Gridiron Gang or some of the studio films I've done, even though there's union rules, it's unbelievable how helpful everybody is for one another. And you get on some of these indie shows fighting for position of what their value is or what their worth may be. God forbid they see a guy who cuts his arm off trying to figure out a, a, you know, a hydraulic lift out of a moving truck before they just go over and help the guy. And that's to me is it's just put your pride aside, help each other out. You'd be so amazed how far you can go. I, I always find it interesting that filmmakers in general, they're taught and the myth in the industry is that you're going to be the next Quentin Tarantino. You're, yes. you're going to be the next Robert Rodriguez. That is, but what they don't tell you is like, well, that's nice. And one out of a billion people is going to, maybe that'll happen to, because we're still talking. We're still talking about guys in the nineties who made it, you know, there's not a lot of new up and coming stories. There are a handful, but I'm a, not to cut you off. I'm a firm believer. Hollywood makes sure there's one or three every other year, just to make sure keep that keep that keep that thing going. Yeah, keep that absent. Not to cut you off, but I do believe there is a method behind the madness of development out of nowhere success. I think there is. No, there, there's no question. But they don't teach you what happens if you don't become the next Quentin Tarantino. If you don't become that, and that is so toxic for yeah. for a filmmaker and. When you're young, and I was definitely uh, uh, guilty of this, the ego is rough. I mean, there's a reason why I called my last film The Corner of Ego and Desire, because <laughs> as a filmmaker, if you have even a remote amount of just, if you got an award at the local film festival, your ego is out of control. And I, early on in my career, got a lot of attention for some shorts, and that was a little bit I was already beat up a bit, but I was a little bit out of, you know, a little, little, little ego, a little egocentric um, in regards to the way I, I approach stuff. But I never once walked on a set with a big hat that said director on it yeah. or a big T-shirt that said director on it or walked around with an eyepiece that I didn't know how to use. Not like a, not like the James Cameron, like, you know, let's set up a shot or Martin Scorsese. Yeah, a, a, a real, like. No, like one of these really small ones that have no association to the lens that you're going to use. It just makes you feel like you're a director. The only thing that were, that they were missing was a monocle and a blowhorn. I mean, it was, yeah. it's insane, the stuff. And I've seen these stories and I've seen these directors on set. And, and nowadays, like when I see that happen, I'll just go, don't worry. Don't worry about him. He'll be fine. It'll be fine. It all works itself out. It all works I, itself out. I. I found that the the best experiences, the best synergy vibe on a set is when, you know, you may be the guy who raised the money, the guy who wrote the script, producing it, directing it, going to do the whole thing. And, and you make everybody feel comfortable. Everybody yes. feels safe. And that's our thing. You know, as you, you read in the book, it's about respect. It's about treating people how you want to be treated. And I know that sounds so cliche. But it, it seems to me, unless you're a few of the real crazy tyrants out there, I won't name them. It, it seems like the smaller the filmmaker, the bigger the ego. 
And that's just something that's always rough. I just don't yeah, understand. It's I, true. I think they're missing tremendous opportunity to collaborate with some great people that feel stifled. That can, I, I'll give you an example. We were shooting break even last summer. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. There we, CJ Wally, who you, who, you know, uh, wrote this scene as I asked him to write it. I gave him a Google image of the, the harbor we're at. There's a part where the two people come off of paddle boards onto the dock, walk down the dock, throw a guy in the water, jump on a speedboat and steal it. Okay. It's, and I wanted it as a oneer on Steadicam. Then I would pick it up. And I'm looking at the logistics of the actual, now that I'm here and the boats here and the fuel docks are there and this and that, I'm going, I can't get what I designed. And you know, I've got 40 people staring at me. And the first thing I did was I said, guys, take 10. If, if you can contribute to the thought process here, I welcome you to stay. And if you can't just go get some food, we'll call you in a minute. I got to rethink this out and I need help because this is not what I envisioned. It's not what I envisioned won't work. And I said, just anybody has an idea, just sit with me. And do you know how hard that was to do? Here mm-hmm. I am, director, producer, and I'm right. getting the charge and I'm sitting on the bow of the boat. And I'm like, what I want to do won't work. And I, I want some help. I need some suggestions. And it was probably a second AC that came in and said, hey, what if you do this? Holy Toledo, that's not a bad, all right, everybody, let's go. And, you know. But that's uh, as opposed to someone who has no confidence in themselves, because that takes a secure person. And I think that does come with age, man. Like, unless you're wise beyond your years, age is where that comes from, or just life experience is where that comes from. Um, because it's like, I couldn't like a 20, I'm afraid of what would have happened if I would have, I had a project that I worked on when I was in my mid twenties that had big stars. And I wrote a whole book about it, about like working with the mob and all this kind of craziness. (laughs) And I was afraid I look back now. I'm like, if that would have gone, if I would have actually gotten a $15 million movie and was working with the caliber of stars that I was meeting. And working with, I, I, I would have, I would have completely self-destructed. I oh, would, I would have, I would have never been able to handle that because I was not prepared for it. Troy Duffy all over again. Oh, yeah. I mean, if if nobody knows the Troy Duffy, please, I wrote a whole giant article about Troy Duffy and the and the Boondock Saints. Um, and you, you've got to watch the movie overnight. Every filmmaker should watch. Has to watch that. Movie. Every filmmaker has to watch because you see the deterioration of, of. Of a, a film director who's out of control, and by the way, years later I had a friend of his on my show, and he told me about because you know, he goes, "You still talk to Troy?" He goes, "Yeah, I talk to Troy all the time." Troy, by the way, did very well on Boondock Saints too. Like he did, he did millions. He did extremely well. Nobody's crying for Troy. No, no one's crying for Troy right now. But um, and of course, ever since the whole Harvey Weinstein thing, which he you know he Harvey he was making Harvey to be the villain in, in overnight, and now you look like eh, okay, this now makes sense. Um, he maybe he wasn't wrong about that but i he he said he goes imagine dude if someone ran ran around with a camera during your early 20s when you were doing a movie like that i promise you you probably wouldn't look that great and i go you know what you're effing right man you're absolutely right if someone had been following me during that time period of my life and now that is the image of my name and of my brand for the rest of my career. Like Troy would have to do so much to break away from that. But that is. That you're is you're right. And, and you know, what's funny is, is, you know, we talked about 
the George Clooney, Charlie Sheen Grizzly movie. Yeah. Um, I was I was very young and I was put in a situation of running a movie stars production company. And he was at a point in his life where, OK, was he still do- he had just come off terminal velocity and the arrival and shadow conspiracy. And he wanted to. take. He was hot. Movie. Yeah, he was. Charlie was still making 11, 12 million dollars a movie. Yeah, uh, he was rolling. He yeah. Was- we, he was rolling. We were getting a lot of movie money to make movies, and he wanted to start doing indie films, and they paid us a lot of money to do indie films. I, I was, let's see, it was 96, was it 25, 26 years old? I'm sure I was, I thought I was being nice. I never really became a, a dick that I know. I don't have those cringeworthy moments. When I look back, there's a few things I said or may have done to people that I wish I hadn't said it in that tone or with such enunciation. But, you know, I look back and go, thank God people weren't following me around with a camera. And I was on my best behavior. And But the thing is, too, also, you were raised at the business. So, was, yeah, so it's not like you kind of grew up with this. So it's not as like from coming from nowhere to all of a sudden being associated with big stars and big projects. And then all this crap that Hollywood and the film festivals shoved down your throat, like the myth that Tarantino's and Robert Rodriguez, you're yeah. going to be the next big thing. And and then and then you're not. <laughs> so yeah, it's... No, I, to me, every day is a grind. Uh, I always, you know, people always say, "What was it like growing up with nepotism?" Well, for me, it, it made it harder. When I was a child, I was given jobs. I remember when I was done pursuing a professional music career and said to my dad when I was 17, "Okay, I'm serious now. I want to be a filmmaker." He said, "Great. Uh, do you want my Rolodex? You want to call some people and see if they'll hire you? I'm not hiring you." I was like, "Well, what do you mean?" got a five picture deal what do you do? and he was like i can hire you go work for the world dude give me a call he said oh and by the way the edit bay's down there third door to the left why don't you go spend five or ten years in there and then we'll talk he goes go learn filmmaking he didn't he didn't give me anything i mean my dad was a maverick he pissed a lot of people off which which made it hard for me to get meetings and still some of those calls haven't been returned but I wouldn't want it any other way. It keeps me, it keeps me fired up. It keeps me churning. Um, it keeps me doing things like this and wanting to inspire others. It, it just don't ever get complacent. It's never easy. And look, I, I got, and a lot of people get all caught up with nepotism and all oh, you, you know, you got the, you got a way in. I'm like, look, man, they might, nepotism might open the door and it might get you a meeting and it might even get you a project, but it's you and it could get you a job, but it's you doing the work and actually seeing if you have talent and can you make the money, that's the only thing that keeps you in the door. I don't care if you're Max Spielberg, that doesn't mean anything. You're going to get a meeting if you're Max. I'm, I'm sure, and Max didn't go into the business to my knowledge, though. No, he was smart. But, he was smart. He was smart. So he's like, no, I, if you're Max Spielberg, uh, you can get a meeting. Everybody, everybody in town will meet with you. And maybe even get you a job and maybe even get you to start to direct. But it's about you, your hustle, your work ethic, all that other stuff that's going to keep you inside the door. So I don't nepotism. Yes, it does give you some opportunities that might have not gotten elsewhere. Like my kids, if my kids want to get into the business one day, I would yell at them first. But if uh, if they ever did want to get, if they ever want to do get into the business, they're going to have you know decades of my experience to guide them, which I never had. I was in Florida. <laughs> Well, you know, it, uh, there's something that I've always tried to remind people, and I know a lot of people who had nepotistic opportunities who are selling storage bins right now. They're selling cars, and there's nothing wrong with that. But they've got A-list parents, uncles, aunts, cousins, brothers running studios, and they can't keep a job in Hollywood anymore. And 
And what I learned quickly was it's not, okay, it may not be what you know, it's who you know, but you better know what you're doing when you get there and you better put all that nepotism aside and you're connect. And, and I think when you're, when you have a contact to get through the door, you have to work that much harder because so many people are, are hoping you'll fail. I oh. remember the, the first job my father ever picked up a phone and got me. And all it was, was, was a second AC job on a, on a Richard Crenna movie back in the late eighties. Yeah. And called the DP he knew and said, look, um, I don't care if you pay him or not. I'll send him with a sandwich. I want to get the kid on a few sets that I'm not running. I want him to get his ass kicked, throw him to the wolves. So they threw me on this Richard Crenna film. I didn't get paid. I, I was allowed to eat. And <laughs> That's awesome. I remember the DP didn't like me anyway, but he liked my dad. And him and I are dear friends now, which is great. We've done a ton of things together. But back then, I was that 17-year-old punk. And he threw me to the wolves, man. I got called every name in the book. People were playing tricks on me. They were putting signs on my back. They just wanted me to fail. And I wasn't even getting a paycheck. I was just another guy to just move cable and hang a barn door. You know, they didn't care. Oh, no. I, I'll tell you what. I had, I was consulting a friend of mine who works in the business. Uh, she works over at Universal, but like in the legal department or accounting or something like that. And her daughter was just getting out of a film school, a local film school that would remain nameless. And, um, and then she was like, can you talk to her a little bit about what the, the business is like? I'm like, do you? do you want me to? She's like, yes, I want you to tell her the truth. I'm like, okay. So I had, I had, I had a coffee with her and I said, listen, um, I want you to, you know, you, you see that your mom and this, and your mom can make a few phone calls and get you on into our, you know, into the DP section or, or in the art department or somewhere you can get on the back lot. She could do all that for you. And she's like, yeah, I know. You know, and I'm like, if I were you just understand that if you do go in that path, um, and I, by the way, if it was me, I would take that opportunity because anything you can get, get it. But understand that the second you walk on the set, if anyone finds out how you got the job, you've got a target on your back. That's right. And she's like, what do you, what do you? and she like, you could literally see that she never thought of that. And Deer she's in like, Deer in head, like, what do you mean? She's like, <laughs> they will want you to fail because the same, the, the person that's next to you, the same PA that's next to you came up from Kansas. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Drove cross country is living on someone's couch right now and is in busting their ass to get to the same place that you got because mommy made a phone call. Yep. I, I, you couldn't, you couldn't be more <laughs> correct. I remember I used to produce a bunch of commercials for an ad agency here in town. And I remember the owner of the ad agency said, Hey, I need a favor. Um, there's a newscaster who will remain nameless, but she is one of the biggest 30, 40 year running broadcast news anchors in the business. Her son just graduated high school. He's thinking about getting into production. Can you find a job for him? I said, well, uh, can you be a PA? And he's like, I don't know, just treat him well. Mom's a good friend. And I remember like getting 50 or 60 people wanting that job, but he got the job because of who he was. And I sat him down and I said, I happen to know your mom. I haven't seen her in years, but I met her and I thought she was wonderful. I said, look, you have a target on your back because you're, you're at the bottom. You're going to be getting thrown the most crap to do. Everybody's going to be watching you because you have the same last name and it wasn't a common last name as your mom. People are going to connect the dots. You have a choice. You can either rise up as the water starts to get high around your neck. You rise up with it or you're going to sink. And I will tell you, if you fail me, I will fire you. I'm not, I don't have warm body syndrome on our sets, dude. You'll get the opportunity. 
And you know what? He was a star. He did a really good job. And uh, but you're right. These these youngsters coming up don't realize the target that's on their back. Um, you know, getting these opportunities. It's very tough. It's, it, it's it, not. It, it no, is tough. Really, no, it's not. And um, can you talk a little bit about stuff? Because I know this is something that they definitely don't teach in film school. How about the politics of a film production? The politics? Which part? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Just, okay, so act. Not to sit in the director's chair. No, to... no. Like, the, so, like, the politics of, of, the, of a set, okay? And then each department has their own hierarchy of politics. So the DP... With the the assistant camera and and then and then there's the light the gaffer and the lighting department yeah. and and yeah. The, and then the key grips and the dolly grip and all these kind of things, but as the thing that people don't understand at least from my experience is that there is a lot of politics going on, a lot of a lot of times people have different uh, end games mm. uh, involved. So I've always told people I'm like whoever you hire as your DP, make sure that they're there for the story and not for their reel because always. they will they will bust their balls to get that crane. To get this nice long 20 second crane shot that will never make the edit, you're gonna use two seconds of it, but they want it for their reel. Yep. So and 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 you and you've burned four hours because they're lighting it like it's a Scorsese film. And 20 grand to get the crane and all the permits to and all yeah, the setup. Yeah, all that stuff. So but but as a young filmmaker, you don't know any better. So you really right. need to understand. So that's one set of politics. Then there's the power struggle where if you have a young director on set, which I've been the young director on set, of course. Not, oh, not as much anymore, but uh, <laughs> but uh, I was the young director on set where then the script soup was sent in by the producer to test me and push me to see if I had the metal to actually hold the production together. Right. And because they didn't know who I was or what I had done prior, I'd already done commercials and music videos and other things like that before I got on a narrative film set. Sure. And, the, and this, this is before IMDb, this is before the internet, so a lot of people didn't know, they, you couldn't check up your work, they just heard. Right. So they, they needed the test. So that's that kind of politics you have. And then sometimes there's like spies from the production that come in to see if you're directing right. Or they're spies from the head of your department. They're like, hey, uh, you're, the, you're, you're the, head, the head camera guy. Keep an eye on, on Joe there. See how Joe's doing. And you never know that you're being watched. So there's yeah. all these kind of things. You can touch a little bit about. I've touched on a bunch of it. Can you touch a little bit or add to that? Well, you know, I, I could take up two hours doing that. I mean, that's an interesting. That's an interesting. The politics and the dynamics on a set are unbelievable. I mean, I kind of. I mean, I work with a lot of the same people now. I try to have a, a loyal crew that I enjoy working with. But yeah, there's times where I'm a work for hire. I gotta bring in other people, and you, you try to keep those things. I. You know, the one thing I always do with a DP if I'm hiring one is I say, look, this isn't about your reel. It's about the overall. When I look at a new DP, I don't want to see his reel. I call directors and editors he's worked with and say, send me raw dailies. I don't want to see his reel. Because, you know, I'll ask a director or an AD, did this DP, were you guys ever held up because he was slow setting up? Did you guys need 10, 15, 20 takes because of camera? Or did you do five or six takes and everything was great and it was more a director's choice? I like to find those things out. I, I always let people know this isn't about you, it's about us. That way they don't feel alienated, but it's more a team effort. And I always tell them up front, you're not getting anything for your reel until the movie's out. And that can be anywhere between a year and a half and three years. So mm -hmm. suck it up, you're here to make a movie. Um, but there are dynamics. I, you know, I was taught very young, Alex, 
that uh, anybody who's a cameraman wants to be a cinematographer. If they're a cinematographer, they want to be a director. If they're a this, they want first, to be a that. If you're a first AD, a lot of times they want to be the director. <laughs> they want to be a director too. So I, I remember that going in. And, and, and to me, again, I always found that's probably why I don't hire ADs when I make movies. <laughs> um, but yeah, there is a, a, there's politics, there's dynamics. Um, on a set, I feel, you know, I learned from Jeff McGuire, who is a, a tremendous writer. He wrote for Iron Gang. He got an Oscar nomination for In the Line of Fire with Clint Eastwood. Jeff taught me something 30 years ago. He said, just remember something in this business, no matter what, no matter how kind somebody is being or how accommodating they may seem to you, they are doing it for their own gain. Don't ever forget that. He goes, you'll make a lot of great friends in this industry. But he said, just remember, Everybody's got a purpose for what they do. And is it true or not? I think it's more true than untrue. But I just think it's it's about working with people that you can trust and making sure everybody's on the same page. And I think if people feel comfortable, like we talked about earlier, if they feel from the, the top down, it's like we look at what's going on in our country and people can say, why is things happening the way they're happening? Well, you look at the top and how people are behaving coming down. Oh, well, it's happening up there. It must be okay to treat somebody this way. I think if you can, I think you can, you know, lead with a soft voice and a big stick or whatever the term is. I think people, the respect and, and the backbiting and the conniving on a setter, they become a lot more minimal. I agree. Least, if, that's what I think. From my experience, too, if you cast the crew appropriately, yes. it's casting the crew. You cast those personalities to see if it, it's all in because if you have one toxic person, especially if they're a department head, it's tough. Because, I mean, I've had a boom guy who was toxic, and it just brings the whole set down until I had to, to go over and like, get another guy here tomorrow because I'm not going to work with this guy. He's just, he's just toxic. His attitude, his energy was heavy. Everything was just right. rough. And it's just too damn stressful. Making a movie is a stressful scenario. It's hard enough. We don't need bad apples to use a generic term. And you know, it's funny when you said that, it reminded me of something. I was on a film a couple of films ago and it was weird. I, I always do a SAG after a film with a non-IA crew. That's just how I work. Some of my guys are IA guys. They, they, they want to come work for me. That's fine. That's their right. I love having them, but we don't have union rules. So what are those rules? Well, we don't pay the union rates. We still have the days are the same length. We still pay overtime. We're still feeding them, feeding them breaks. Yeah, very well. We overfeed. And there are just some things like, hey, you know what, guys, I need grace. We need to get two more takes of this. Are we all good? Everybody good? You know, ask for grace. And then you get that one guy who's part of a union that shows up one day that's just angry, bitter, trying to tell everybody, let's turn the show and all that. Oh, it's like, God. come on, dude. Our budget's 400 grand. You really want to turn the show? <laughs> you know? I've been I've been involved with productions who, who had their shows turned. And for everybody listening, if you if you don't know what turning a show is or flipping a show, is yeah when a when you're in a non-union shoot and you've got union guys working on it and I, the film I was working on uh, I was doing post on they actually were 50 they were outside the circle they were outside the 50 mile circle so they were they were they were quote unquote okay they had some union guys but there was this one guy one assistant camera who wanted to be part of the union and he yep. made a phone call and the next day the union was there and they and they shut down the production and they had to flip the production. And because of that one dude, that film sat in my hard drive for a year because it had to, they had to raise another 
like, you know, another few hundred thousand dollars to finish the film. And it was all because this guy flipped the film. So that's. This was one of your productions. No, it was, I was, I was just working post, just a dude in it for themselves. So it, it I, what I, what I do is I have an understanding of where budgets need to be to not get flipped. I mean, if your budget is a certain amount, they're going to leave you alone. If you start treading in areas that oh. you risk, go ahead. Well, no, the thing was that our project, uh, our, that project I was working on was a low budget project, but it had two high profile stars. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Ah, well, yeah. I mean, sometimes I guess anything's possible. It's just, um, you know, what I always, I always try. I don't, I don't subscribe to the theory uh, permission uh, or forgiveness is easier to get than permission when it comes to filmmaking. I always try to nip the bud. Like when I set up to do my independent stuff with visual arts entertainment, I called the head of the IA. I just, I called him, got to the head of the IA, introduced myself. This is what I'm doing. I've got three films I'm doing. These are the budgets. I need to know that I'm not going to have a problem. He goes, you called me. You're telling me your budget, your budget. I believe you. I told him where we were shooting. We're way out of the, you know, the zone. And he said, dude, I will keep a note of all of this stuff you will not hear from us and guess what in a four and a half year period making those films we didn't have one guy not a problem at all. it was it all is relative to um <clears throat> the production because i was on another project that was a million dollar production a million dollar production had oscar in florida had oscar winning oscar nominated actors in it like big actors iatsi showed up they didn't know what the budget was yeah, they, IATSE showed up and they were shooting on a Panasonic DVX 100A, a million dollar production. Don't ask me why. On that camera, on that camera they were shooting. This is this is back in the nineties. Uh, this is actually early two thousands. I had the VX two thousand. I remember. Yeah, it's amazing. It's an amazing camera. And they said, "Oh, oh, sorry, we didn't. Sorry, they just walked away because they said, oh, there's no money here.' Okay, great. But what they, if they, if you haven't had that conversation and they see a big star." They're gonna flip. They're gonna. They're gonna. You're gonna have problems. I agree with you 100. Now, can we can we talk about the film deception? I, I mean distribution. <laughs> As you know, I don't know if you know or not, but I've I've become a, 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 a kind of like a a a, a warrior for film yep. distribution. I I want to help filmmakers navigate this ridiculous system that is film distributors. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the system. What's wrong with it? How can it be fixed? Your, your horror stories, all that stuff. Well, you know, uh, th and that's the chapter in my book, uh, film deception. I mean, distribution. I think is what it's called. And <laughs> exactly. You're right. And it's you know, I've been involved with some some big indies that were like million, two million dollar indies that had deals, and nobody's made any money, nobody's seen money, and they go in and they audit and they find out the film's made three million dollars, and oops, sorry, I missed that. You know. Um, I think you have to realize that it's hard because you as a filmmaker, you got you create a product, you raise the money for it. As you say, you cast the crew and then you cast the film, you know, the actors, you go through the brutal process of making you go to war. Let's be honest. Making a movie is war. And then you kill yourself in post and then you get it done and then you entrust it. You entrust it to somebody to sell. And I, you know, unfortunately, you will never know the true numbers that a movie makes or doesn't make. 
Um, and I think you have, as I say in my book, what I always try to say is try to find a group that will capture the vision early on. I, you know, everybody has that envision of, well, I'm going to just throw it up and let the bidding wars begin. It doesn't work that way anymore. It's not, it, the, ni- it's not the 90s it's not and the we're not in Sundance then. <laughs> it's, not, it's not, you know, hoop dreams. It's, you know, come on. So what I always suggest is really try to develop relationships with, with distributors that have got longevity. You don't want somebody who just fell off the turnip truck or a guy who's running a company who was part of a company for two years and part of a company six months before that. You know, there's some good companies out there that are tried and true. Mm-hmm. Just know going in, they're, they're all going to have their creative accounting. And but stop all- right there. For, so stop there for a second. I just want to yeah. touch on that. And this is what I've been yelling about from the top of the hills. There it is. It's a systemic problem in that side yeah. of our business. It has been going around since the days of Chaplin, which is yeah. called creative accounting. I yeah. feel that it is as prevalent as the casting couch was prior to the Me Too movement. Like the casting couch was a, it was just like, you all heard it like, oh yeah, you have to go on the casting couch if you want to get the part or you heard of this, of this casting couch. And when I was in film school, you heard about that. And it was even joked about in in movies and stuff. It was just part of the way movies were made until finally that, that horrible cycle was broken. I feel that the same thing is happening on a financial standpoint in the distribution side. Where, oh, there's, and I love the way you just said it, like, oh, there's going to be creative accounting. Why? There's no other industry that I know of, like the cookie business. If you, if you make a cookie, you sell a cookie, you send it over to the, the supermarket, the supermarket's got, like, there's no creative accounting in the cookie business. Why really? is it, right? So why is there creative accounting in our business? And why is that still acceptable in today's world? It's, well, the reason, sadly, it's acceptable is because, you know, you got 33,000 movies a year, Alex, being made through SAG with at least what somebody deems a bankable act. Okay, that's a whole sure. other discussion. But, but people are beholden to investors or their wife if they wrote the check themselves, and they got to get a film out. And distributors know how desperate us filmmakers can be. And they also know there's 54 territories on the globe, 174 buying countries. So. Alex, if I'm a distributor and I take your film and I know if I make a hip pocket deal in Guam, the chances of you going to Guam on vacation with your wife and staying at the, the Radisson and seeing it at two o'clock in the morning on Guam Vision or whatever, you're probably not going to see it. And you're not going to know if I got five grand, twenty five hundred for it. So what happens is there's 54 territories. They're going to hopefully sell the biggies. You know, you may get somebody come in and buy up 20 territories. You may sell Germany, Southeast Asia, Vietnam, uh, China. But most of us filmmakers don't realize, and it's in my book, there's 54 territories. All those territories equally need content. What is What I believe keeps a lot of the smaller distributors awake and alive is those hip pocket deals they make at AFM, Toronto, MIPCOM, Berlin, where they're like, look, I'll tell you what, you can have these 10 movies for 10 grand. You and I will never know about it. We just don't know about it. I mean, I've traveled the world and seen my films on TV years later. Like, I never made a deal here. And like, you know, like, seriously, I mean, it's happened. And that's, I think, and then there's also the charges, the market charges, you know, when you have a They'll charge you up to $25,000. Then there could be a market overhead charge for another twenty-five dollars plus anything that you don't have the money to do. 
you need a surround 5.1 surround fully filled m e well we didn't do that i only had a few grand to mix the film and stereo they'll gladly do it for you so you have to be sure they're not charging you more than it should cost well you mean like you mean like ten dollars uh, per minute for cl- of closed captioning <laughs> yeah where to do a 90 minute movie should cost you more than 112 dollars i mean right. i remember i remember doing a music video for vh1 for an artist i won't say who and um vh1 demanded um we did closed captions for their video and i found a place that was for a music video three and a half minutes you've done a lot of them yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, closed captions for no. uh what year for, was this what year VH1. was it what year what year was it oh it was like 2004 okay sure okay but not, not a long time ago they it was 582 dollars <laughs> And I'm freaking Jesus out because I, I never like right. walked closed captioning through any of so I called a friend of mine, oh. Todd Gilbert, who used to run Avi Lerner's uh, post-production. I love Todd. And I called him and said, hey, buddy, I got a question. He's like, what are you out of your mind? Call this place in San Francisco. It's going to be like, it's, it's going to be like no money. So the music video had cost me like $38. And right. the same company for my 90-minute movies, it's $112 for 90 minutes. All in. Exactly, and there's so many other options now as well. But so I love I love the term hip pocket deal because not many people understand what that is. And what you've basically explained is like they have your movie, they have worldwide rights. What they're going to do is they're going to call up uh, South Africa uh, or even a smaller market, and you have a relationship with Guam. Let's say Guam, and they're like, look, I'm going to give you two thousand, give me two thousand bucks for this film, and uh, and you'll never hear about it because unless you audit them, and even if you audit them. Good luck. And so that you have no power. You but are... that's get away from it. So not to right. cut you off, the way they get away with it is they do the block deal. So there is no paperwork for that film. Oh, let's not, yeah, talk about packaging. Don't get they yeah. do, they'll do 10 to 20 films for 20. It's a thousand to two thousand dollars per title. Take all these titles. A lot of people, I had a guy who came to me to help sell his film, and I, I befriended a former scorn distribution guy. And he said, and I said to him, this guy's got insomnia. He's up at 2.30 in the morning watching Cinemax. He can't figure out how some of the worst movies in the world are on there and why his movie can't get on there. He goes, oh, I can get it on there tomorrow. We'll just have to package it with 10 to 20 others. We'll get two grand and it'll be on Cinemax in four months. He goes, because those deals are packaged, they don't show up. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. They just, I'm sorry, but that's it. Not, not to throw Cinemax under the bus. Cinemax isn't doing anything wrong. It's the people peddling these package deals to these foreign networks and countries and ancillaries. It's just what happens. And there's also, don't forget the fire sales. And yeah, there's fire sales as well. They're like, oh, yeah, here, yeah, I'll give you this movie for 500 bucks. Just, you know, here yeah. you go. And, and those deals are done at AFM. They're done at the con. They're done at Berlin. Yep. And they're done online now, <laughs> yeah. but you're right. And, and where that comes from is a sales agent takes on a film. They can't give it away. It's a stinker. And they may have put together some artwork or a trailer and be out a few grand of liquid cash to their vendors to get it done. They need to start recouping. So what I always tell filmmakers is please, 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 please read the fine print. Read my book, because I actually copy and paste a lot of contract misleading language in that chapter of my book. I, the, the way the book came about, I, I get a lot of calls from independent filmmakers for advice. I even get some calls from very well-known filmmakers for advice when they need to save a buck or two. And what 
what happened was, is I started writing a blog and they said, Hey, do you want to write a book? And then my wife was like, you know, you're giving a lot of time to people. Why don't you just, you keep, she goes, I've been listening to you do this for 20 years. You keep telling them the same thing. Why don't you just write your thoughts down and it's all in one place. And that's how the book became. And while I was writing the book, I had a really respected indie filmmaker who for the first time in their life was stuck. He raised over a million and a half dollars of his own, you know, of liquid cash made a movie, got a couple of big stars attached, and it was on his ass to sell his movie, to get distribution. He had no idea how to do it. He was a very good filmmaker with no business in distribution. So he starts sending me all these contracts and his investor wants him to sign this with this company. And I that is when the light bulb went on for me, Alex. I went, oh my God, I got to write about this. I have to take these documents and copy and paste them and put them in a book because these are so duplicitous and so misleading. People don't realize when they have a $20,000 market charge and then $20,000 <laughs> service charge, that's 40 grand that the movie's going to make before you see a dime, plus a percentage, plus marketing costs of a trailer. Well, the trailer probably costs them a thousand to make. They're going to charge you five grand. The posters cost them a few hundred. They're going to charge you 1500. That all gets back charged, dude. And then they're going to take 20% on top of that as a commission. Oh, yeah, but they'll take, don't forget, they take that 20% before all of those expenses. They make sure that they, oh. yeah. Oh yeah. So if you, if you're saying a hundred thousand, that twenty grand goes right off the top. Then they start pulling out all the. Yeah, it's yep, it is right. su it's such a a scam. And I think that I mean my 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 second book, Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, it's about giving filmmaker the power to take control of their own mm -hmm. thing, and and which leads us to the next question I want to talk to you about because you worked a bit in the music industry as well, and I've been yelling. Mm -hmm from the top of the lung, from the top of the hill as well. And in my book, that if you want to see where the film industry is going to be in the next five years, all you got to do is just look at the music industry. It's the exact same pattern that is happening. Whereas the actual art, the actual content is, for lack of a better word, worthless. It means it has no value to it, where a song used to cost $18 to get the album so you can get the song. now. Beyonce is getting paid a 20th of a cent for a play of one of her songs. What do you think an independent artist is going to have? What chance do they have? So uh, I want you to talk a little bit about where you think, because if you, and if you think that's not happening, <laughs> look at Amazon Prime and you're getting a penny. And I'm, I'm sure they're going to go to fractions of penny soon. I, I promise you they will. Are they not already? I, if they're not already, you're right. So that, you know, a penny for an hour of viewing is what Amazon's paying. So essentially the movie is almost free. worthless. It's essentially well, free. I, you know what? Let me, let me answer that by starting going backwards on what we just talked about. I knew of, a, of a, a sales agent, not a distributor, an agent that got so frustrated not being able to sell somebody's movie that was actually pretty good. He made a couple of foreign deals like in South Africa and Germany and like, you know, the Sahara's. The movie was starting to make a little money back and he got frustrated. And before his contract, his three year or five year deal was over, he uploaded it without the filmmaker's permission on Amazon Prime. So then it became worthless. He couldn't give it away after that. And he got his first royalty check after a year. And I think he saw seven dollars and thirty eight cents. And you're talking about a six figure movie. I mean, I think the guy paid six, seven hundred grand for his movie. It wasn't cheap. So. That is happening. Um, I, you know, I'll tell a story, and this is directly from artists that I've worked with over the years, Alex, and you and I were talking about this before we started today. Um, 
the music industry used to be something that, you know, those artists for their writing, their performing of recorded material had value. Like you said, in the 90s and early 2000s, we would go to the CD store on payday and spend $19 plus tax on a CD for that one or two songs. There was no, you know, downloading on Napster, which really changed it all. Yeah. And it really did, sadly. And I learned from some artists that I'm very close with one day about 10 years ago. They said, well, you know, music's free now. As soon as our CD comes out, somebody puts it on YouTube or our music video on YouTube. You go to YouTube to MP3 convert. You download it. It goes on your iPhone, your iPod, your iPad, your iHoo, whatever. People have their, our music everywhere. We can only make music in the touring and merchandise. So the question now becomes, I know there are titles I have that we have to go on YouTube every single day. And five, 10 times a day, there are titles of mine that are being urged on YouTube that I have to go in, take 20 minutes of my day and fill out a copyright request thing. And it's the movie was out and sold, but people are watching it for free. It's basically useless and, and worthless. We, we, we don't have live performance touring and merchandise Really, I mean, unless you got Yoda like you do in the back there or some of the cool things you've done. You know, you're you're a pretty small dude. You've got cool things with your movie. I don't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Figure, right? I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Yeah, it's, this industry, it, it, the sustainable independent is going to be tougher and tougher because the deals are going to get smaller and smaller. The content is not slowing down. Everybody's making something. Um, I don't know where we're going to go. And then you still have the demands from the unions on the royalties. and the, because, but, they're, the, but they're also building that out off of a model from the, the 80s and the 90s when money was <laughs> which money was flowing. Like I was working in Miami when they did a, a music video and I, ha I saw it. it was a $500,000 budget on a second tier artist. Not even the, the, the top tier artist. That was, that was the 90s. There was money Flowing like there was no tomorrow. All those deals, all those residual deals, like there are, there's not going to be any more fro, any more friends deals or Seinfeld yeah. deals where those actors are pulling in twenty million a year off of residuals. Those days are gone. Gone. And it's going to be rough. It's not only rough for um, musicians, but on our side, actors are. It's getting tougher and tougher for any residuals on actors. Before you could do one or two national spots a year, and now, and that could keep you afloat comfortably. You could pull in 60 to 120 if it's a Super Bowl ad or even a big national ad that gets played a bunch, you would get residuals. Hold on a second. Yeah. <laughs> tell me, tell me. One of my best friends did a Bud Light ad for a Super Bowl three years ago. Mm -hmm. And how much? was grand, man. How much was it? Five grand. Right. So now that's what that that's all in. <laughs> so now, so before you used to be able to do that. Yeah. Now but you now, better be Flo or the guy who's the shell guy. To, or, or Mayhem. Mayhem. Mayhem's making about yeah, the million. Those are the guys that, you know, Flo, Brent, Bailey, who's the shell guy in Mayhem, uh, are the guys that are making good Quan because they are owned for two years. They sign two-year contracts with these companies that they're first on refusal. They make it paid. But you're right. And I remember growing up as a kid, I, you know, I grew up in the industry. I had a neighbor who was a, a Gatorade girl. Uh, or a Coca-Cola girl. She, I remember when she was in high school, she went to her mailbox one day. We got off the school bus. I heard this screaming. We all go over there. She opened up a check for her Gatorade Worldwide residuals. It was $74,000. And this was in 1986. I had in full, in full sale, 
one of my teachers was the associate producer of Parenthood. Mm. Okay, of that movie Parenthood by Ron <laughs> Howard. He was he was a Happy Days guy and all that stuff. So he was telling the stories like he played uh, a, a, the part of the opposing little league coach for Steve Martin, and he had two lines. He's an under five, right? Yeah, he said two lines, and he said, "Come on, Jimmy, you could do it. Come on." And that was that's all he paid. he did two days. They held him for the first day. They didn't get to him. They, so he paid. He got paid like whatever it was at the time, like five or six hundred dollars a day. It was like eighty nine or something like that when it came out. Then first residual, fifty thousand dollars. Yep, fifty thousand dollars. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. A really good buddy of mine was the unit production manager of Seven. The movie Seven. The movie Seven with Brad Pitt, David Fincher's movie. Sure. First residual check, fifty, seventy thousand dollars as the as the UPM because he's a DGA. So UPM first AD and director all get residuals. Of course. All of that's going away because Netflix changed the game. And they said, no, no, why are we going to pay residuals? No, no, we're going to do buyouts. And as you, as you saw with Disney, Disney's actually saying, yeah, we're going to give you two seasons of residuals, uh, two years of residuals, and that's it. Is it? And so the whole game is changing. So they're literally, the corporations are trying to squeeze now even all of those kind of like placeholder things to help the artist to survive. As an actor, as a writer, as a director, as a filmmaker, the lot of things that we grew up with and were taught with are no longer going to be around or are around period and 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 i'll and i'll be honest with you sag afters made it difficult because they basically make you sign your life away to get your film cleared so you can make it with a sag actor and then they want to know why the resi- there's aren't any well i got a streaming deal somebody's paying me three dollars to stream the movie uh you got a six hundred thousand dollar movie here it's made back eighteen thousand dollars but like you've got investors you've got costs you've got overhead you've got commissions for who sure, it, it it's such a and, and you're right it's like everybody is still going everybody who's squeezing the filmmaker is working off of boilerplates from the 80s and 90s when there was tons of money i mean there was people, dvd I'll, markets they were i'll sleeping. be honest with you i had a film a couple of years ago air on uh, uh, a cable network and the buyout from the cable network was five grand five grand so the union saw that and was like oh huh, line it up buddy we're backing up the brinks truck uh, it was it was fun to show them like oh I lied it was actually four thousand uh, dollars they expected this huge six figure and it was resi- a big and it was a big network it was huge they they bought it out for they had a six month run on it for it was like one of the big pay pay networks man they they gave us four grand the whole the whole like six months or a year four four and don't forget the sales agent took twenty percent so we really obviously 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 <laughs> the sales great. agent took twenty percent. So where's the residuals for what? There, that's and that's the point. So and as and and what COVID has shown us is the pressure. Now it's shown us how flawed the system is. It's so and, flawed. It's so flawed. So I, I I I'm saying Rome is burning. I've been saying this for a little while now. Rome is burning, and Rome yep. is Hollywood, and the yep. systems that are around Hollywood, that be in film distribution, whether it be the, the the unions, whether all of it has to burn down because. It's not that I want it to. It just has to burn down now. And then out of the new world, it, the, this new system is going to come up. I hope this new system can help filmmakers and artists. I'm not sure it will, 
I hope it, there is more potential for the artists that get more control of their art and of their finances, but it's going to be a battle. And what it was before, like when you and I were coming up, you could make a living as an actor, as a, as, as a writer doing small projects, as a filmmaker doing small things. Remember music videos, like I was just saying, you can make a living doing music videos. You can't do music videos as a living now, not unless you're at the very top level. When I was doing 80s rock band music videos back oh. in the day, talk about the half million dollar budget. Oh, like Motley and Poison and Guns N' Roses. Those guys were getting seven figures to do videos. Oh, yeah. So I still work with a lot of those bands. When we do videos now, it's, hey, you know, can you grab a camera and a couple buddies? We'll give you five grand. Can we make a video? Yep. And it's not that they're poor. These guys were smart with their money. The, it's just they're not dumb. They're not getting the record label support they did back in the day. They're not having a hundred grand go to catering and limos and blow. It's now coming out of their pocket and they know what things cost. And they're like, hey, Shane, can you get a couple buddies? We'll, we'll put together five grand for you. Can you do a video for us? Oh, no, I, had, I, I was doing videos. I was doing videos with Snoop Dogg and Ludacris. And and I saw, I mean, two thousand dollars, because they knew the artists knew a lot of times. And I'm not saying it's Luda and, and Snoop specifically; they were guest starring on some other people's stuff. But they knew that as a director, you're like, well, if I have Luda and Snoop on my reel, I'm going to be able to get some work. And they know yeah. that, so they're leveraging that to get you work. I mean, it's you know, I, I wanted this episode to be kind of like a a little bit of a a box that opens up and exposes the truth about our industry in a small way, especially things that they don't teach you in film school. So this is really geared towards people who have not been on sets, who've not been in the business for a long time to really understand the tr the reality. And this is a pretty raw and brutal conversation. You and I, we're just two old, old, old war dogs who've got a lot of shrapnel because we've been in the business for a while. But I'm sure a lot of people listening right now are horrified. <laughs> And, and I don't want it to discourage anybody. And no. Conversations with you until the freaking cows come home. I enjoy it. Yeah. It, it, it's the fact and point is, is are we going to be real or are we going to sugarcoat it? It's like, right. you know, do you want to tell a woman who's thinking about having a baby, it feels really good giving birth, especially make sure you don't get the epidural. You'll love it. <laughs> you have to be honest. It's great. I love people, that. Because I, I, I mean, I, I hate breaking hearts. I hate. I would never want to crush a dream. If no. it was easy, everybody would do it. I still want to encourage people to do it, but know what you're going up against. And you, you know, you've opened my eyes to some stuff here today. It's like, yeah, you know what? That's the problem. I, I never heard it voiced like that, Alex. It's brilliant. They're still working off of 80s and 90s contracts to try yeah. to work things in today. That's jamming, how it but the system is built on those boilerplates. The system is built. The SAG contracts are built on that. The DGA contracts, the WGA contracts are built on with the, with the assumption that there's money, that there's money flowing, that everyone's making money. And yes, there are, but that amount, people who are actually making money, it's extremely small and they're all the way at the top. Okay, yeah. I, always, I always use the example of like Blade Runner. I'm not where the owl is at the top of that building. I'm at the bottom where the really good food is. Um, that's where I live. I live on the street level where Harrison like is, where Harrison's getting picked up by James Eddie, Eddie, Eddie almost. Okay. Eddie that's almost. yeah. That's where I live. And that's where most filmmakers live. We live down at the bottom level of Blade Runner, but most of us want to be up where the owl is up where Sean Young is introduced. That's where we all want to be. And I've been in that room a couple times. You've been in that room a few times. We get to visit it, but we never get to stay. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, you're right. They have you in for a little bit. They'll have you over for a drink. Right. Uh, you know. You might even yeah. stick around for a little bit, but sooner or later, security finds you and kicks you out. That's the way I always look at it. Um, but but that's the game, and that is that is our industry, and that's why I've been yelling. And, and film distribution is the worst out of all of it because all of their systems are built on shit from the 90s. Uh, in the right. early 2000s, they're still talking about DVD sales like it's a thing. Don't get me wrong. There is still money in DVD, but nothing like it was in a 30% comeback during COVID. Let's hope it sticks. Right. But the point is that that's not that's not no. the growth industry. DVD is not the growth industry. It's not vinyl. It's not vinyl. It's there's no you have to go to Best Buy and Walmart to find them or the 99 cent store. Right, and all of them are uh, enclosed areas that generally people don't want to go into it now because... <laughs> well, yeah, and, and people don't realize those DVD deals are done where they say, hey, we'll give you $2 a disc for 4,000 for 4, of them. We're going to just sprinkle them around Walmart. Yeah, but they don't talk about the uh, the returns. Oh, no, 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 no. You don't get that. You get the $3 per disc, less your 20%, but they're going to sell them for 9 or 12 or $15. But a lot of, But a lot of those Walmart deals... Because it's Walmart, they'll go, yeah, we didn't sell about 500 of these, so we're going to ship those right back to you, so you're going to eat, eat those costs. And I always tell people, do you think that the, you think the film distributor is going to eat that? Oh, no, 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 no. Don't you, don't you worry. You won't, you won't, you won't ever, don't, you'll ever even know what happened. And that's... No, you, would be, you would be better off getting a credit card <laughs> that you may get a five or $10,000 limit on and just buying up every disc. Yeah, so that doesn't cost you back. I know that sounds crazy. Oh no, but buying them all out because at that point, then at least you could go out and sell them yourself if you want to. Like you did. I mean, you're you've been very smart selling your your own. I gotta learn from you. I want to get your next your last book about that because it, it, there's so much to learn from guys like you that have figured it out. You no, know, it's it's and it's one thing. One reason I was really excited for us to talk, besides your platform being something that I was excited to be a part of it and researching you and what you've done, Alex, it's brilliant because Appreciate that's all like, I, and I hate to keep bringing them up. That's one reason I think we, we hit it off. I mean, the guys in poison back in the eighties, they could not get a record deal and they find every record label passed on them. They literally got a, a deal. It was them, the smithereens and one other band. I can't, remember, I think it was great. White got a deal from Enigma. They went to a warehouse in, um, where's the airport, that area. Van Nuys? Uh, no. Um, no, no, man, the LAX one. What is that? We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Area. Oh, I know what you're talking about. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, that there area. was a warehouse there that the guys were literally shrink wrapping and packaging and putting the sticker on uh, their, for the label. The label's like, yeah, we'll give you a record. Or you got to come here and help us package it and ship. Like literally Brett and Bobby and CeCe and, and Ricky were shrink wrapping their own records and helping get them out to the stores. And then what happened was is Capitol Records ended up buying Enigma. And then it exploded at the right time and it, you know, everything worked out. But that's how we have to remember it really is and how it was and how it very well could be again. And fortunately, we have a digital platform so we could sell it. But it's the, tough. The game, the game has changed so much. The rules are so different. And I, I just want filmmakers listening to understand that the industry is still is still built around those old models. And that's why the industry is having... That's why it took Disney 10 years to launch a streaming service. 10 years. 
10 years, years before before they years. launched a real streaming service to compete with Netflix. Because when Netflix showed up, everyone was like, eh, I don't know, eh. And, and, and Hollywood is definitely not known for innovation. It takes, for, it takes someone with some major weight, like a George Lucas, like a Steve Jobs, like someone to come in and go, or James Cameron, and come in and just go, you know what, guys? This is the new way. Follow me. I, I will tell you how right you are. I did Gridiron 12, 12 years ago with Sony. I, I stayed on the good graces and in regular touch with the regime for another two or three years, you know, developing other things. Hey, you want to have lunch, you know? And I remember talking, I think it was Amy Pascal. She was still there. And I think I remember her saying she had this really bizarre meeting with all the heads of the other studios. It was Paramount, Universal, Warner Brothers, Sony, Disney, Disney and Fox. It was like, it was like a, you know, a big gathering. It was like all the, all the, all the mob, you were just remember like all the mob bosses were getting together in an undisclosed location. Got it. <laughs> I said, what was the person meeting? She said, Netflix is going to be a major problem for us. And we all need to have a meeting of the minds that we are going to start pumping the brakes with these, with these guys. And we are, we need to all create our own streaming service. Well, what year and was I, this? What year was this? Well, I was 10, nine, 10 years ago, <laughs> probably nine or 10 years ago. Right. And I said, so wait a minute. You guys are going to start pumping the brakes on what you're giving these. And she goes, they don't pay much and they're owning it right now. Why don't we have Sony streaming or Paramount streaming or Universal streaming or Disney? And it wasn't called. But she literally, I literally remember this conversation where it was like eight years, 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And you're right. That had to commit. You're right. It took Disney 10 years. 10 years. And, and Disney's, and Disney's killing it. And Disney's killing it right now. But Peacock's having Peacock's having a rough time right now. Um, I know HBO Max is doing okay, and they're I think they'll okay. be they're fine. But they also had they were leveraging HBO Go already. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. and I I think Maverick is going to end up being Paramount uh, Paramount Network's big push at the end of the year. I think they're going to end up just streaming that. Well, I don't know. Theaters are starting to open up, but I, I still think they're going to use Maverick for something. Yeah, and uh, and. But I, and I've been saying this, and then because this is, we could keep talking for another four or five hours, I'm sure. But um, but I've said this before, a ton of times, and I, I'll say it again. Within the next twelve to eighteen months, Paramount, Sony, uh, or Lionsgate, or MGM is going to be absolutely absorbed by either Google, Amazon, Apple, Apple or Facebook. <laughs> Those four guys have so much cash that if Facebook wanted to really come in. To this game, yep. for real, yep. they're, they're playing in the streaming. They 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 do a couple little shows on their Facebook Watch thing. But if yeah, they yeah. really want to come in, they, the they buy MGM's catalog. They buy Sony's catalog. They buy Paramount's catalog. And all of a sudden, you've got content and lots of it. Oh yeah. And they're yeah. all and all of them are prime. They're prime targets because they're not doing well. I am a firm believer that. Um, I think Apple's going to end up buying Netflix in the next three years. I that's that's been the rumors for a while. It's going to take a lot because I think also Apple has the cash to buy anything they want. I mean, there was talks of them buying Disney. I know. Yeah, that's <laughs> like, that's like, can you just wrap your head around cash? By the way, it was cash. It's like they have enough cash to buy Disney. That's I, in a slush account. That's in a slush account in Ireland somewhere. But um. I don't. I think Netflix itself, and and then we'll and then we'll start we'll start winding this down, guys. Unless you guys, if you're still listening, fantastic. Um, I think that Netflix itself as a company 
is not diversified. So yeah. they are they are very vulnerable because if they get hit, if Disney's Plus goes away tomorrow, Disney's fine. If HBO yeah. goes away tomorrow, H- Warner's is fine. They'll make it. If Netflix's numbers drop, it's gonna hurt, and they're gonna they're gonna drop go out. They're in debt up to their eyeballs. Yeah, it's taking forever for them to pay their filmmakers. Not that they're not paying them; they are paying them, but it's taking delayed responses and things like that. You can start seeing the writing on the wall on what's going on. And now Netflix is having to pump so much more money in to compete with the Disney Pluses, compete with right. HBO Max, to compete with Hulu and all of these other platforms. So right now, I don't think Disney would buy them because they're just too big for what it's a compare it's a comparatively to the deals in the marketplace. The deals in the marketplace, because they have the they have the distribution. They have the membership. They have emails from millions and millions of people who have all their all their um accounts and stuff like that. Right. So but if you buy Sony, which has all Columbia and TriStar and all of Sony's content and all their television and all that stuff, that is a bargain. Paramount's a bargain. MGM's a bargain. Lionsgate is a bargain comparatively to buying Netflix. In my in my opinion, if I was if I was Apple or if I was Google or if I was these guys, I'm like, okay, We've got the technology. The Apple, Google, Facebook, they'll figure out the tech. If they don't figure it out now, they already have the technology. Technology is not a problem with them. Infrastructure is not a problem for them. Content is a problem for them. And Netflix also comes along with a lot of debt. <laughs> a lot of it. So anyway, okay, let's, uh, let's finish off this, uh, this amazing conversation. I'm going to ask you a few questions. I ask all of my guests, what okay. advice would you give a filmmaker trying to break into the business today? Um. The advice I would give a filmmaker trying to break into the industry today is wear a crash helmet. Um, just be prepared to hit a lot of brick walls. Be tenacious. Don't give up. Don't give up. Because if you do, it could have been that one next try that, that could have done it for you. Yeah. And I, I just see if it's in your heart and you're passionate about it, just just keep going. You, you hit the door enough times with the bat, it's eventually going to come off the hinges. Amen. Amen. Uh, no question. Now, what is the lesson that took you the longest to learn, whether in the film business or in life? Um, you can't change people. <laughs> wow, that's a good answer. A real good answer. I think I think a leopard shows their spots, and that could be me. It could be somebody I'm working with or a partner. I, I think I think people show you who they are, and if you think you're going to change people and mold them into who you want them to be, you're you're going to waste a lot of time and energy in that. And you either can accept who they are and work with that or move on from that if it's toxic or unhealthy. And three of your favorite films of all time. Three of my favorite films of all time. They're not what you would think they are. Um, I would have to say Sideways. Yep. Um, Jerry Maguire, yep. Notting Hill. Those yep. are three that I will stop everything and watch every time they're on. Yeah, there's just, there's that. That's a, that's a group of films that make sense together. I mean, are they the greatest movies of all time? Absolutely not. But I can, I can spin past anything. But when those are on, I got to stop. Yeah, exactly. Now, where can people find you, what you do, and uh, get access to your book? Well, thank you. Um, what you don't learn in film school is you can go to whatyoudontlearninfilmschool.com. It'll guide you to the different places you can buy it. It's available on Amazon. Um, uh, a whole bunch of different retailers, Barnes and Noble, uh, all online, or you can get the hard the hardcover books as well. Uh, so, what you don't learn in filmschool.com, you can go to my website, Shane Stanley at info.net. Oh, I'm sorry, Shane Stanley 
chainstanley.net, I think. God, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Email is uh, info at chainstanley.net if you want to get something to me. I'm pretty open and accessible in that respect. So, um, uh, yeah, so those are the places you could find me. Shane, it has been an absolute joy talking to you and having you on the show. It, it is, uh, it's always nice talking to, uh, to uh, an old battle-hardened dog as yourself and myself together. I always love, I don't like to use the word old, I think seasoned. Seasoned battle dog. Indie rats, man. <laughs> seasoned indie rats. Absolutely. And we're still here. And we're still, we're still here. We're still here. We're still fighting the good fight. And, and, as I, and you and I both know many filmmakers who are not still here. Uh, they, they've left the business. They've gone to do other things because uh, the business got the best of them. So if you're able to just be persistent, a lot of times the people who make it are not generally the best, not the most talented, uh, not the most experienced. It's the people who not just the most nice. <laughs> not the most nice. It's just the guys who the guys and the gals who just just keep showing up. Just keep showing up. They figured it out. You know, I learned a long time ago. It's balls and passion that that makes it happen. And you know, films get made. You know, a lot of people will watch a movie and say, God, it's the worst thing I've ever seen. How did it get made? Well, back up and look, how did it get made? Somebody was passionate about it. Somebody had tenacity. They had balls. They had capital. They had something because they were able to get it on the screen. So it's doable. It's just you got to snap it on and figure it out and do it yourself. Again, Shane, thank you so much for being on the show. I appreciate it, brother. Stay safe out there. Alex, it's been an honor. I hope we get to do it again. Thanks, man. I want to thank Shane so much for coming on the show and dropping those knowledge bombs on the tribe today. Thank you so, so much, Shane. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, including how to get a free audiobook copy of What You Don't Learn in Film School, a complete guide to independent filmmaking from IFH Books, just head over to the show notes at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv forward slash 277. Thank you guys so much for listening. As always, keep on writing no matter what. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv. 